listening to a sermon audio from Cypress Church. You can listen to more sermons on our website or by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. We hope you enjoy the sermon and invite you to attend one of our services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Good morning. I'm Ron Jackson. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the counselor on staff as well. So I know an awful lot of secrets about you guys, so you just better be nice. (laughs) When I was given this passage to preach in a number of weeks ago, and I read it, I said to myself, this is deep. This is profound. And I began looking into it more and looking at it more. It was Matthew 5, 4, which says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I put my counselor's head on and began dissecting the words and thinking about it. And about two weeks into it, I said, this is too much to preach on. Then about a week ago, I got a touch of illness. Couldn't quite finish that first part of my sermon and began starting over again. And I need to apologize to the guys in the sound booth because my message no longer follows their outline. (laughs) It's not their fault. But I began realizing, no, this message is very quite simple. So simple that I don't want to mess it up by using too many words, by making it too confounded, too turned in on itself. Jesus said something not just for the poetic purpose, not just to be unique and different. On that Judean hillside where he taught his disciples and the crowds that followed him in the world that they were living, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, every day spent 70% of the day just trying to get the meal for that day. Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There was very little comforting in those days. See, the very idea of mourning was difficult. It was very common in that particular part of the world. And believe it or not, it's even more common in our day. This goes against the whole structure of our purpose today in living in Southern California in our world. The whole effort of human life is to avoid sadness, to deny loss or fill it up with something else. We do not want to mourn. Your relative dies. You've got three days. Get over it. We are driven by a pleasure madness, the drive for amusement, entertainment, thrills, the mania that seeks the next big high, the money, the energy drink, and enthusiasm, expending it all and living it up. Honey, we've got more room on the credit card. Could have got a bigger TV. And if Jesus says all these are expressions of the world's ability to avoid mourning, You think that was difficult when Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Luke records Jesus saying, Woe to you that laugh, for you shall mourn and weep. Jesus' approach to true living is in such contrast to our life. Jesus condemns the shallowness of not being in touch with who we really are. We were made in the image of God, and that doesn't mean just ten fingers and ten toes. We were made by God to use our voices to praise Him. We were made by God to feel Him. We were made by God to connect with one another. God is a social God. He is in three persons. And to prove how much He loved us, He sent a Son to live among us, like us, confined to a body like us. He lived in our world and he ate our food and he felt our seasons and he, he, he stubbed his toe. 
He lived a great life and did everything right. And we rewarded all that goodness by saying, die on the cross. And in the midst of that dying, not even a private death, a public death, a public humiliation. And Jesus said, I'll do it for you. See, Jesus says real happiness comes in relationships. And it's so often those relationships are broken and scarred and hurt because of things that people say and don't say. So this idea of happy are those that are mourn, we need to recognize that we are not like the Jews of the New Testament that felt that if they did everything right, if they had achieved greatness, they were going to hit that spiritual target. And Jesus said, until you come to the point of your recognition of your utter bankruptcy, you will achieve nothing and you'll never enter the kingdom of God. That was so disruptive to the Jews of that time. They thought they were doing everything just right. Their whole life was meant to be that way. In fact, when Jesus was invited into the home of Pharisee, the Pharisee's probably kind of giving his thumbs up to the guys behind his back. He's coming to my house for lunch, coming to my house for lunch. Kind of a one-upmanship thing. But Jesus agrees to go to him. Jesus doesn't say no to anybody, the Pharisee or anybody else. But as Jesus is having this meal at the very beginning before the food is served and everybody's laid out in their splendor and these Pharisees had wonderful robes they would, that was how they expressed their, their, their wealth you didn't really carry on a whole lot of coin because coin was heavy and you get robbed and all that but it was rare that you'd have your clothes stripped off although it happened quite often but basically you, you, your beauty was in your clothing and your home decoration he was in a home and garden little place there having a wonderful lunch being served to him by servants. And somehow through the back door snuck in this woman. She wasn't invited. She wasn't belonged. She wasn't part of the upper crust. She was, frankly, a street girl, a prostitute, a whore. Oh, please, get her out of here. How'd you get through the kitchen? She walks into this room with all these dignitaries there, and they think they're special. We're having lunch with Jesus. This woman goes over to the feet of Jesus and she has the most expensive jar you could buy in that day, an alabaster jar. She takes off the top, pours out this, the most expensive oil you could buy at that time and pours it on Jesus' feet. It was meant to be poured on the head and the body. She pours it on his feet. And then it says she stands there and the Pharisees are thinking to themselves, as recorded in the scriptures, they're saying, Jesus doesn't even know who this girl is. He has no idea who this girl is. She pulls out the things holding up her hair until her hair had fallen down. She then is weeping, falls at his feet, washes his feet with her hair. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Not what the Pharisees expected. Not what they wanted. This is about them, not her. And that she knew that she needed a redeemer. And she went to the one who would give it to her. So Jesus here is saying with this, those who mourn, he says, happy are the sad. Happy are the wounded. Happy are the neglected and the put upon, the sat upon, the ones that are beat upon and even the spit upon. Happy are the broken and the shattered. Happy is the spouse who's been traded in for, a, for another model. Happy is the parent who felt they had a contract with God that if I do everything right, my kids will go to Christian college and graduate. Somehow they lost the paperwork when the kid got older. 
The words are so different that Jesus says here. This is not a world that says to us what we should be, but God says this is what reality is. Matthew records this here in, in this book. Uh, he had a lot of choices, by the way. There were nine Greek words that could be used for grief. This is the strongest, it's the lowest, it's the, it's the one that comes in the very bowels of grief. It's the one that someone uses when you are bent over and you can't even speak anymore. It's that kind of grief that you cannot even stand in his presence. Jesus says, Blessed are those who are crumpled onto the ground, who cannot move themselves. They will be renewed, and they will be blessed. I've been working in the church for about 35 years. I hope a few years longer. In the last 10 years, I've become a therapist. And one of the things I've discovered as a pastoral counselor and as a therapist and all that are the issues that people bring into me. When I got out of seminary, I figured people want to come in and say, explain to me the, 12, the seven days of Genesis. Nobody asked me that question. You know, what do you think Deuteronomy? Do you think it was Deuteronomy 1, Deuteronomy 2? Do you think the authors of these people? Nobody asked me those questions. People came in and said, my husband won't love me. My kids hate me. I got fired from a job I love because someone lied about me. My, my, my daughter has no friends. My son doesn't want to follow in our footsteps. He doesn't want to come to church anymore. And I was kind of lost as, what do I say to these people? So I just given the, the biblical answer, and I couldn't really find one that fit their situation. And it wasn't until I began to simply put my hand across the desk and look them in the eye and say, I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. Let's ask God to do a miracle here. But let's not tell him what it is. Let's just love on our children and go through our next day if we possibly can. You see, so often in this world, we're very aware of the sins that we commit. and We think we'll so often have to confess those to God, and we do. But we also need to recognize that we are often sinned against. Not on purpose all the time, but oftentimes deeply hurt by those that supposedly loved us. I've had so many young men in my office that said, I didn't do what my dad wanted me to do. So he never gave me the blessing. Well, the dad had no idea what a blessing was. He thought, grow up, get out, here's your car. And the kid was done. He wasn't told by his father what the kid was good at, that he was a proud of him or loved him. The daughter was never told to do anything, but just you hope you get lucky and get married. And she got lucky and got married. And again and again and again. You see, we don't always launch our kids in the right way. And this is not a point of putting down parents and saying, bad parents. I did the best job I could do as a parent. My mom did the best job she could do as a parent. But she wasn't adequate. I wasn't adequate. We are not adequate. We live in a world dead set against us. I don't know about you, but I keep having to remind myself that I'm living in enemy territory that the prince and power of this world is Satan and he has thousands of years to create the systems that we are in and they twist us the wrong way and they suck our children away from us. So where do we find the healing for this? What's the answer? Well, I'll tell you, I'm going to put it in the book and sell it, but I can't. 
It's not something you put in a book. It's something you have to experience. And a lot of that experience now is what Celebrate Recovery is all about. Now, for some of you may think that Celebrate Recovery is kind of a brand new thing, kind of, hey, we discovered it about you know, 12 years ago. Wow, let's write about it, make a book, you know, make a million. I'm sorry, Celebrate Recovery is old news. Old news. It was what was done in the first century church. It was what the believers did when they committed themselves to Jesus Christ and they had nowhere to go. Whose husbands disappeared in the middle of the night. Whose children were taken by robbers. Whose homes were burglarized. Because you see, so many of the people in that time owned nothing, had nothing, and there were no guarantees. 70% of the world was slaves, owned by someone else, moved there by someone else, and you did their bidding all day long. You had no hope. You had no vision for the future. All you hoped is your kids somehow would live through it and maybe be given freedom or move forward. It was a desperate time and a painful time for people, and they cared deeply for one another. They didn't care deeply for strangers. What was the point? There's only enough food for us, only enough beds for us, only enough water for us. It was a miserable existence. But Jesus came along and talked about a new life and a new place, that God wanted a relationship with them. So God did the most important thing he could possibly do. He came to our world and said, hey, Errol, your righteousness is inadequate, but don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of all that. I'm going to give you a right position with my heavenly father. I'm going to pay the price. All you have to do is say, I'm into it. I'll buy it. That's me. I'm going to accept the gift of Jesus Christ. But we're such a part of the world. So what do we bring? It's the potluck just come and you're like, no, what do I got to bring to the potluck? I got to bring something. I got to do something. I just can't come to your home and eat for free. Jesus says, you're coming to my home and eating for free. I offer it all to you. I give it all to you. And all too often we get caught up in trying to bring something to the party. Jesus says, just show up and just be there. That relationship with God is the first place that we must begin. We begin our journey toward comfort with coming to God and acknowledging that he exists. Sometimes our pain is so great and so real because we keep on losing perspective. God sees it. God knows about it. Hebrews says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. All we have to do is seek you say, I don't have enough faith to seek. Then pray for the seek, seek faith. Lord, just give me enough just today to believe that God is watching and listening. Psalm 31, 7 says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction have known the distress of my soul. If anybody knew the distress of his soul, it was David. David writes in Psalm 55 with all that he had gone through and all of his very obvious sins and his failures, that he writes that at one point his, his, his tossing and turning is so difficult he can't sleep. He says, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, that I might break free from my prison, fly out to the wilderness and find shelter in a tree under a rock someplace. David wanted to get away from his misery and he felt he could not. And who of us have not play, prayed to be that dove as ourselves to get away from it all in our life? We must believe that God exists and he cares. 
One of the interesting things we find also in Psalms that Dave writes about are tears. There are lots of tears in the Old Testament. Lots of tears. I don't think we think any less of those people. Moses cried over the slavery of the people he saw in in captivity. Abraham wept bitterly when his wife Sarah died. And think of Eve. Ever think about Eve crying? Why, man? She lost the garden, but you know, she's living east of Eden. It had to be a good suburb. Really? Here is Eve, our, our ancestral mom, who rebelled against God with her husband and God, and they had been cast out of the garden. Amazing, they have two children now, Cain and Abel. And what was it like for Eve to get the news at one point? Where, where's Abel? He's dead. What, what happened to him? I killed him. Are you kidding? The first generation of creation and there's already murder. What does Eve write in her diary that night? I know she didn't have one. Just carry the story here. (laughs) What would she pray out to God? What a vile, terrible thing. Wouldn't you wish you could come home and say, well, I gave him a black eye. You know, I just punched Abel out. I kicked him down the hill. Oh, you know, he'll be home in a minute. No. Her one son murdered her other son. Eve's own children committed murder. Eve had to have had eyes full of tears and cried for days. But there's something about our tears. They're never wasted. Whether they get absorbed into our pillows or into our arms or as we wipe them or our hankies. Psalm 56, 8 says, that God has kept count of all my tossings and turnings and he's put my tears into his bottle. that kind of interesting? All of your tears are in a bottle that God's holding. He is aware of your distresses and your pains and your difficulties. He's aware of the times you were lied about, the times you were slandered, the times you, that somebody made fun of you, the times that somebody tricked you, betrayed you, cheated you, lied to you, went out on you, promised you and never fulfilled on you, abandoned you. And if you couldn't keep up, traded you in for something different. All those tears, you thought they went to waste. No, they're in a bottle. God's aware. God's very aware of our difficulty. But we often become unaware of our own difficulty and we forget it. God, God, when we sin, God does not run from our presence in horror, but we tend to run from His. He does not cower away when we sin. He simply says, come, talk to me about it. He doesn't abandon us if we reach out for help. He is ever-present, close to us. Nothing is too hard for God. Luke writes, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Let me take in a journey here inside of our brains. That was a transition. You know, one of the things now is we're getting in this century here that we've learned more about the human brain in the last 25 years than the previous 2,500. We always knew it was had a consistency of jello. But I don't think they had jello in the first century. They just said kind of gooey. But we now know because of people that have Alzheimer's disease and mental illnesses and drug addictions. Scientists have been doing an awful lot of more study on the brain. 
probing it, electrifying part of it, cutting out part of it, people with diseases being able to overcome those diseases. Our brain is quite platistic, which is a $10 word that says it's flexible. It does a lot of remarkable things. One of the things they're finding that's rather incredible they weren't aware of is that the brain is basically a giant DVR. Now, if you don't have direct TV, you probably know what it is. It's a, it's a cable box that can record all of your stuff that you want to watch when you're not home. And we always, you know, my first cable box had limits. Two, two football games. That was it. <laughs> now I could do five. Although it doesn't do me well to do that because when I go home, I say, honey, I got five football games. My wife doesn't say anything, but she just stares at me. And she communicates that look of, okay, honey, I'll erase two of them. And she goes down the hallway, I said, three of them. And as I hear the bedroom door shut, Peyton Manning's playing in one of them. The door opens up again. But our minds are great at creating and memorizing these things. In fact, this is what science is finding out. We are aware of, and we have recorded in our brain Every one of our human experiences, from the womb to today, from the womb to today. Now, some of you simply say, I remember nothing since uh, after nine years old. Come to my office, we'll fix that. Um, we remember all those things. What we remember about it is not just a, 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 just a blank memory. It has emotion tied to it. That emotion with that memory gives us our feelings and our experiences about how life is. If we have a lot of negative experiences, a lot of bad experiences with with bad emotions attached to them, we tend to have a negative look on life. If we have good experiences and good memories, we tend to look forward to things. Have you ever noticed how some people look forward to Thanksgiving as though it's the greatest holiday in the world? You go back and talk to them. They probably had some of their highlights of family time. With Thanksgiving, it was outstanding. Birthdays were super. Anniversaries, love them. Christmas, the greatest day on the face of the earth. And for some people, they kind of go, Christmas, oh no, not again. Another birthday, oh no. Anniversary, I'm not going to that one. My brother's going to be there, and I'm not going. I'll send a card, but I'm not going to go. We remember these things. Now, if our memories are traumatized, meaning very bad experience, our emotions often become disconnected, uncoupled like a train car. And while there are memories embedded, the emotion doesn't always stay embedded with it. And we begin to get this vague feeling of something's wrong, something's not right. But we can't think of it directly like that we tend to just accumulate these feelings, and we don't know why. So when somebody says, hey, do you want to go bowling? Oh, I just don't, oh, no, I don't feel like it. Hey, do you want to go to a birthday party? Oh, no, I don't like those things. I don't know why. Do you want to go to church? Oh, no, I, do you have a bad experience? I can't think of one, but I, I don't like it. We, these things become detached. How do we connect these loose emotions back to our memories, back to our lives? It's through Storytelling. People, do you remember the most important people? You don't remember, you weren't there. Bob. <laughs> Some of the most important people throughout history have been the village storyteller. 
that would talk about the history of the city, the history of this clan, that the way things were done. When I first went into ministry, I had a family from India, and uh, she was a lovely gal, and she was married to an engineer at uh, Long Beach State, uh, brilliant guy, uh, always had a smile on his face, scared me, uh, but just always happy. I was <laughs> really just, wow, I'm glad you're so happy. Um, and she, and she, she said, could I come and be a Sunday school teacher for you? And I said, well, I sat her down and said, I, I need to know if you know the Bible, do you know Jesus? And she knew it all. She goes, yes, she goes, I, she goes so it's being a Sunday school teacher is so important. And I said, well, why do you think it's so important? She goes, stories are like giving kids blood. They need stories. I said, where did you get this idea? She goes, in India. Our parents would go to the village to buy food. And there would be a storyteller. They'd all pay the storyteller. Here, tell the kids anything you want to. And the storyteller obligation was to fill the kids with joy and awe and the history of their village. And the kids grew in their understanding of why they felt and did the things they do and why they had their celebrations, why they sang those songs, why they voted that snake. And, I, and, she, and she says, throughout history, there have been storytellers. It's our literature. Our literature is not just somebody said, I want to make a book. Want to make a book? Who cares about books? But I want to tell a story in a book. Now that makes sense. We read. We're reading because it gives a story. One of the things that Celebrate Recovery does so well is we get in a large group and we hear stories. And you say, well, that's not my story. No, it's, no, listen, listen, listen. And as everybody begins to share stories, those who want to share stories, sometimes you have a feeling kind of pass over you and you kind of go, oh, I didn't like that story. But sometimes somebody shares something and you find yourself riveted, riveted to that story. When they get done telling it and they kind of go, I don't think anybody else ever had that experience, but that's what I went through. And from across the room, someone says, me too. (gasps) Me too? Yeah. They had that same story. It is in the storytelling, it's the union, it's the coming together. This ancient art of the church, uh, meeting together in groups and sharing our lives with one another is so vitally important because we've all been crushed and hurt. We all are full of mourning and disappointment and we all need to be renewed that there is hope in Jesus Christ. There is hope in all this. For a lot of us, churches like this little vessel here. All these little round wooden balls are you and me. I'm right here. Uh, here, right over here. We're, we're kind of touching one another. We're close to one another and kind of nice. But we're not totally connected. There's some people in this jar I don't even see. Some people in this jar I don't know that they're there. I don't hear their story. I don't know them. But it kind of feels somewhat good but there's still some distance between us. But while we're here, it's good. But I don't live here all the time. I have to go back out into the world. Wow. Those are the pastors that left late. <laughs> now we're really separated. Some aren't even touching one another anymore. We're really apart. What do we need? We need the work of story and fellowship and care to draw us together. This is olive oil. How do you get olive oil? Don't say it, Stater Brothers. (laughs) We get olives by crushing them. 
There is no value in a single crushed olive. It's just something you just kind of kick back into the dirt. But if you take a hundred olives or a thousand olives and you put them in an olive press, and that, you know, when I went to Israel, I saw one of these presses and I thought it was very impressive uh, how slow, how long it took and how meaningful it was. It's a large, about like five foot stone, really big, you could knock it over, with a V cut out in the front. And on the bottom was this big shelf with a hole. And you'd put all these bags of cloth with olives in them in that hole. Then you would slide a large stone down to that V and put heavy rocks on top of that stone. And the pressure would begin to build and push down and down and down on those, on those uh, olives. Nothing happens at first. But as the olives begin to feel that pressure and begin to break, the olive oil begins to ooze out down to the very bottom and across the trough and is collected into a bowl. We use that olive oil for cooking, for sustaining life. And if the olive isn't crushed, it doesn't give its true value. It's selfish. We can eat an olive, but olives that are crushed give so much to everybody. We are being crushed by this world, and we are being turned into olive oil. God wants us to bring it all together. So now, we are all touching. We are all connected. One is not above the other. No one is left out because we've all come together and said, pain is hard. Pain is difficult. It's hard to get through things. God exists and he cares for you. He collects your tears in a bottle. He's provided that place for you to grow and to go. So, Celebrate Recovery is not some new fangle thing we developed. We're kind of rediscovering an ancient art of the church. Get together, share our difficulties, pray for one another, keep a confidence, and support one another. Because frankly, boys and girls, living in this world is hard. There's no guarantees. And I know that because I am daily presented with people who come to my office and they weep. I have seven boxes of Kleenex in my office. It's barely enough sometimes. Because all people need to do is have a safe place to come and cry. Now you say, I'm not a crier. I'm not going to this place where I'm going to tell stories and cry all the time. Nobody says you have to cry. Just come and listen to the story. And maybe capture one of those feelings that says, somehow you don't feel you're so good. You don't measure up to God. You're not what he wants. Maybe somebody can sit down with you and say, hey, I'm Bob. Let me tell you what happened in my life. And you still love God? Oh, do I love God. He has given me the freedom to overcome my addiction, my anger, my frustration. Now I know I need God and not my neighbor. I need God. I'm not codependent for everybody having to praise me. All I need to know is that God loves me. And now I do know that. And I do trust in that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's not meant for the new kingdom. It's meant for today. It's meant for you and I. Shall we close in prayer? Father, I do pray that this message of hope, of simple truth, of restoration, is taken advantage of by so many here that need to reach out. They want to know that somebody can listen to them and really care, and that life is hard, harder than, it's unbelievably difficult. 
and that we don't need to hide behind the Sunday morning smiles to say everything is just fine. When our kids are in rebellion, when our spouses have left us, when our homes are taken from us in bankruptcy, when our children go to jail, you are there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.